Good morning, everybody. It's Jeff Goldberg for the Sales Pro Network. It is Friday, November 3rd. Oh my goodness, we're in the last two months of the year already. I can't believe it. I hope you're working hard and I hope you don't have that head trash that says you can't sell after the holidays because the holidays are coming any minute now. At any rate, I'm a sales coach and trainer. I work with both individuals and organizations to help give them more sales confidence and help them close more business more profitably. And I founded the Sales Pro Network three years ago to elevate the profession of sales, to make a place where salespeople can hang out, network with each other, learn from each other, ask questions, get advice and coaching. And if you've been with us before, you know that every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, I do a live interview with somebody who can add value to the profession of sales, or I do a live training. Today, we're going to do an interview, of course, and once again, my friends, I've come through for you. Uh, if you're watching us live, please say hello in the comments. If you're watching us live on Facebook, but have not connected your account to StreamYard, it's just going to say Facebook user. So please include your name. If you have any questions for our guests today during the show, please do ask them and I'll pass them on. And finally, if you're watching us on the replay, please put replay in the comments. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce you to the CEO of Habits at Work. His mission, he is on a mission to make sales the most trustworthy profession on the planet. And apparently he's doing a good job personally because almost 27,000 people follow him on LinkedIn every day. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our guest today, Andrew Sykes. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Jeff. Awesome to be with you. And thank you for the privilege of being on your show. I'm really excited to talk to you today. And I, I understand you're in Zurich right now. I am, yes. One of my favorite cities in the world. And... So much good stuff to say about it, but uh, it's a little bit overcast here. And I understand in New York it's freezing today. So my it's apologies. A little chill, yeah. It's not as bad as it was the last couple of days, but uh, you know, the weather's crazy. What are we going to do? So, Andrew, can we start out with maybe the two or three minute version of your background? What brought you up to this point? Sure. And you know, I, I relate very much to your mission of elevating the sales profession because I started out life as an actuary which is maybe the furthest thing you can imagine from a salesperson, if you know that profession. But one of the beautiful things about the profession is it's very well respected as a profession. We trust our life and health insurance products to their good work. We put our retirement funds under their care. So the biggest assets we have in our life are designed and managed in vehicles that are actuarial in nature. And most of our life, I've spent my time as a salesperson so I've lived this conflicted life of having a wonderfully trusted profession and then showing up as a salesperson, which in every survey I've ever looked at is the least trustworthy profession. And I think that's a, a shame because I believe that if you are motivated to sell in the way that I think is best, which is with a mindset that to sell is to help another human being make progress in their life, then that deserves the respect of a profession. And so I'm on a mission to turn sales from a trade or a job or a set of skills into a profession that deserves the title, the respect and the trust of people we set out to help. I love that. Yeah, you know, we, we, we're already agreeing because I believe that sales is all about service. And, and I'm pointing to my gut right now. You can't see it on the camera, but, you know, your come from deep inside your gut has got to be, I'm here to serve you if I can. And if I can't, I'll let you know. Uh, you know, stop trying to put square pegs in round holes, uh, lying, cheating and steal. Look, I've been in sales almost 50 years and uh, I've seen a lot of deceptive things go on. And in my younger days, I was deceptive, too. I'm ashamed to admit it. But, you know, at, at the age of 31, I made a commitment that I would never again lie to make money or to take a woman out if you get my drift. Uh, yeah. And I've managed to stick with that all, the, all this time. So uh, let's start out with, with, with trust. By the way, good morning, Bruce Gasserman. Thank you for joining us. Um, how do you define trust? How do we define trust? Yeah, many people have a, a view on it. I think everyone understands it. My preferred definition is that trust is a gift that we give other people to vulnerably expose ourselves to their honesty, to their competence, and to their reliability. You can think of it like they've made a promise about something that will happen in the future, and we've put our life, our career, our family, our something on the line based on that promise. And so we're taking a risk that they're good for it, that they're telling the truth, that they know how to deliver and that they've done so before. And, and for so many people in general, and certainly salespeople too, it, it seems to be a real challenge. It, it doesn't seem to have a, 
a huge amount of importance in their life. I, I know I can only speak for myself, but I've often said that after my three children, the most important thing in the world to me is my integrity. It's important to me to be known as a person who keeps their word because that's, I think that's what makes life fantastic. If you tell the truth and keep your commitments, life works beautifully, not always easy, but beautifully. So, so I'm with you a million percent. What would you say is the biggest myth about trust and why is it a myth at all? Yeah, well, there's a couple. And actually, you've, you've just touched on one because one of the myths is that having integrity, which I define like you do as I have good intentions, I tell the truth and I keep my word is both worthy of trust, which it is, but is also the way that people decide that you're trustworthy, which it's not. There's a difference between being worthy of trust, which is having integrity, and the assessments that other people make of you, which unfortunately happen in milliseconds to minutes before you've even had a chance to express your intention, make a promise, or demonstrate that you're being honest. So they use signals of your trustworthiness, and they may not be fair, and that's one of the myths that as long as you walk through life with integrity, people will trust you. In a fair world, that would be true. In the actual world, it's not true. <laughs> yes, I can't tell you how many times I've told my three kids, life is not fair. And if you expect <laughs> it to be, you're going to get screwed over and over and over. Just get with the program. Um, Anybody who's been in, in, in sales for more than like 10 minutes understands that people buy from people that they trust. We usually say people that they like and trust. Uh, I, I think between the two, the trust is far more important. And certainly it's important to be likable, but the trust is crucial. Is trust really a differentiator for, for, for salespeople? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, of course, trust is important and it's so obvious. So let's not even talk about it. Let's rather talk about closing techniques or discovery or the other higher order things. And I'm of the view that they're missing that trust is fundamental to whether or not someone believes you and therefore anything you've got to say about your product. The way I like to phrase it is customers decide that they want to buy from you before they decide if or what they want to buy from your company. So the first sale is always the sale of you. And the single problem we're trying to solve is answering those questions anyone asks when we approach them. Imagine someone approaches you on the street with a clipboard and a t-shirt with some cause on it. You're feeling like, oh, I wanna speed up and avoid them or make an excuse. And you're thinking, who are you and what do you want? And for most of us, we answer those questions before people even open their mouths as, well, you're a salesperson and you wanna sell me something I don't need at a price I can't afford on a time frame that feels rushed. And I believe that many salespeople walk through life expecting to be trusted because they have integrity. And then they're surprised that they're not, or maybe they don't even notice it. You know, you asked about myths. And one of the other big myths, I believe, is the often said, trust takes time to build. And it's true, it does build over time. But all the research in trust says, the assessment of trustworthiness is something people give you or deny you in milliseconds to minutes from the moment they meet you. Well, that's fascinating because that means there must be some things that we are doing or not doing that's causing the person to make that snap judgment. So uh, if that's the case, and I believe you're right, it almost has nothing to do with, are we really trustworthy? It's, are we coming across as trustworthy? Of course we have to be trustworthy, but so what are some of the things that, that people are using to, to figure out, is Jeff trustworthy? Is Andrew trustworthy? And how can we change that perception if it's a, a inaccurate one? Yes, and, I, and firstly, I wanna stress exactly what you said. I don't think it's a question of appearing trustworthy instead of actually being trustworthy. I think it's both, it's being trustworthy and then recognizing that people will use possibly false signals early on. For example, they will trust you less if you're not smiling or you don't make eye contact. They will trust you less if you're hard to have a conversation with. If you ask closed-ended questions or give one-word answers. And mostly, they will distrust you if you own up to being a salesperson. Because we've all had bad experiences with salespeople. That's why salespeople have a bad reputation, or one of the reasons. 
But I think it's a little deeper than that. I think that they learn to distrust salespeople because we've come to expect that unlike doctors or nurses who do what they do, of course, for money, but firstly, because they care about people, we think salespeople do what they do out of self-interest. And so as soon as you say, hi, Jeff, my name's Andrew. I'm a salesperson. I'm saying I am of that group of people who you can expect to maybe lie to you or at least try and manipulate you so that I get a deal and I make money. And one of the antidotes to that is sharing with your prospects why you do what you do other than money, because we all work for money. So what is it really when you're introducing that yourself that you should say? It's certainly not name, rank, title, and what you do. It's much more about how you came to sales, what drives you, what your purpose is, what your mission is, and maybe a little bit that just humanizes you and takes you out of that mold of salesperson. Yeah, we, we definitely have a bad reputation and some of it is, is well-founded. I, I got a call yesterday from somebody uh, saying, hey, would you come to a speech from my group on influence, on how to influence people when selling? And I said, uh, I could do it, but I won't. And he goes, I don't understand. I said, because I don't believe our job is to influence people. I don't think our job is to persuade people. I don't think our job is to convince people. And I don't believe our job when we're selling is to talk people into things. I believe, and this is just my belief, that sales is simply a conversation or a series of conversations between two or more people, the end result of which is hopefully them choosing to do business with you. But I'm not trying to influence anybody. I just yeah. want to have a conversation and see, can I serve you? And if I can, I'll let you know. And then it's up to you to decide whether you're going to choose to do business with me. But when, when, we're, when we're fighting this uh, almost innate feeling that many, if not most people have, salespeople are liars, thieves, cheats, scumbags, who will do anything, anything at all to reach their hands into our pockets and take out those green pieces of paper with pictures of dead presidents on them and put them in their own pockets. We're fighting this, this kind of long felt belief. How do we overcome that? Yes. Well, you know, I, I want to just dig in a little on what you said, because I think I simultaneously agree with most of it. And I have a point of view on this influence question. And what I agree with is that closing as a set of techniques to manipulate people into a deal is distasteful and earns the bad reputation. My friend and colleague, Professor Craig Wartman at the Kellogg Sales Institute says it beautifully. He says, closing is the natural outcome of a sales process run well, which in your more eloquent words is you just do what you need to do to help someone solve a problem. And if you can't, you get out of there. And if you can, it's a series of conversation that gets there. There's no closing to be done. It's a natural thing. But I will say that I, I believe that influencing is part of the profession because customers or prospects show up with you with one mind or mindset or belief. And the best salespeople, I think, expand for prospects what's possible in a very real sense do change their minds about things so i think it's influence with the right motive versus manipulation with the wrong one and i think that distinction maybe makes sense because i do believe well i hope it makes sense to you i do believe that salespeople have a responsibility to influence prospects if you know something that they don't and you can share it with them and that expands what's possible that's an act of influence, but it comes from a good place. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. And I, if you think I was distracted for a moment, I was looking through my PowerPoint very quickly to try to get to a page, which I could not find because on one of the pages when I'm training people how to sell, it says closing is the natural outcome of the sales process done right. So very close. Uh, I, I mean, that's my, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten this call. Jeff, could you come in and spend a day with my people teaching them how to close? And my answer is always, sure, absolutely. What are we gonna do with the other seven hours and 55 minutes of the day? Because closing is a five minute conversation. What you really mean is teach my people how to sell. That doesn't mean that you close everyone, but closing should be natural. I still believe that the, the, the objective of the sales process should be to get to the end and have the other person say, sounds good, sign me up. But that's not usually how it goes. We do have to invite people to do business with us, which is, what I call closing, asking a question that's the reason the end uh, answer to is either, yes, I'd like to do business with you or no, I would not like to do business with you. So yeah. that's where I'm coming from. Uh, and, you know, 
you, you bring up such an interesting point because as I've watched salespeople and customers in the process, I've come to the conclusion that the sale is made so much earlier in the process than salespeople are led to believe. And what I, when I really realized this, it was examining like all of the things that humans know. You know, imagine you've got a pie graph of all the facts and figures you know, all of what you believe about climate change and politics and religion and the things you really, really believe. How much of those things did you discover firsthand versus learning from someone else? Because I think, at least in my case, the answer is, I don't know, some fraction of 1%. And that leads me to the conclusion that humans first decide whom to trust, and that determines what they believe. And I think that in the sales process, we decide as customers whom to trust really early on. And I would say that is when the sale has been made, in a sense. And then all of what's happening later on in the sales process is just talking about which of your products or which of the things that you're saying I'm going to choose to believe. So I think that the closing, if there is such a thing, has happened maybe in the first meeting even, not in the last one. And I don't want to get sidetracked off the sales conversation, but isn't that the essence of the challenge that we're facing right now in America, certainly, and maybe in the world, but certainly in American politics, it's who we choose to trust. Some people choose Biden, some people choose Trump, some people choose the Democrats, some people choose the Republicans, some people choose MSNBC or CNN, and some people choose Fox. And we seem to be living in two completely different worlds when it comes to trust. Somebody, I, you know, there's always your side, my side, and the reality, but somebody seems to be living in an alternate universe, and I'm not, well, I'm pretty sure it's not me, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. It, 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 it's a real challenge. It is. And I think the problem is we all feel like the people on the other side of the argument are the ones not living in a real universe. So I've, if I'm honest, I've given up on the idea of a reality. And I now just go through life believing that, Jeff, there's your reality and there's mine, and they're different. They're just points of view. But what's possible through conversation is that we can co-create a single reality inside of which we can make progress together. Which means we have to come to some agreements that, that are, are true and, and then negotiate on others, which is exactly what I think Congress should be doing and they don't. You know, my side, your side, how about just working together for the American people? Let, 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 let's get out of this one. Uh, good morning, John Hill, by the way. John says, uh, bad salespeople manipulate, good salespeople influence. All right. I like that. We'll have more on that argument later. Uh, so. How can we become the most trustworthy salesperson that we can possibly be? Is there an equation for building trust? How do we become really, I like your term, how do we become a magnetic trusted advisor? Yes. So I think it is what you alluded to earlier. It's the combination of the things that actually deserve trust. So tell the truth, have other focus, other people focused intentions and keep your word, which I would describe as integrity plus behave in a way that allows other people to thin slice you or quickly judge you based on maybe false signals that you are trustworthy. So it's the combination of those two things, at least to begin with. And when it comes to the second category, how do we appear to be trustworthy? I've already mentioned many things. It's been a great conversation opener in the way that you smile with people, you make eye contact with them, you ask them more interesting questions than how are you, you share a little bit about your life so you can reveal yourself as a human different from the profession of untrusted salespeople. You introduce yourself answering the questions that you ask behind the trust formula. And I believe that trustworthiness is the product of three answers that people ask about us. Are you sincere? In other words, can I believe you? Are you competent? Do you have the skills to do the job? And are you reliable? Have you done it before? And it, given that those three things are multiplied together, it has a very big implication because if any one of them is assessed as zero, there is no trustworthiness. So you may be the most competent, most reliable person on the planet, but if I don't believe you, I don't think you're sincere, none of it matters. And when you see that, and I have to say, when I saw that, I just wanted to throw up because I'd spent decades doing the following. High prospect, 
let me tell you all about us and our officers and our people and our credentials and our track record and just try to prove that we were trustworthy by focusing on competence and reliability before I'd earned the right to be believed. And so that formula for me, sincerity, competence, and reliability isn't just the product. It's also worth considering that people assess those questions in order. And if they don't conclude that I can believe you, then they won't believe what you say about your competence or your track record. So we often have to flip, flip the script and lead with our sincerity rather than our company's competence and track record. Again, we're completely on the same page. I always say it's not about us. It's about them. And you have to make it all about them. You walk into somebody's office and Thank you so much for your time. Let me tell you why Jeff Goldberg and Associates is the greatest sales training company in the world and why you should be using us. And if you don't, you're an idiot. Blah, 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 blah. And you can watch their eyes glaze over. They leave the room, not literally, but their mind is someplace else and they're checking their watch to, to get rid of you. We're just not, we're not, we're not being trustworthy. We're not showing ourselves to be the kind of person that they're really looking for. And we're fighting that innate belief that they have that we are not trustworthy because we're salespeople. So it's really an uphill battle. Are there some other ways that we salespeople destroy trust? Yes, and I think we've mentioned a bunch of them. Throwing up when you show up, leading with competence statements and track record statements. I think it is not addressing the fact that people suspect that you have a motive and letting that hang there. It's listening in order to fix rather than listening in order to feel what I call empathic listening. It's not asking enough questions. So there's a stack of things that people do, but I think at the bottom of it, what really irks people is this smell of motive. And few salespeople I think have ever considered how do I get out of the trust hole that I'm put in the moment someone associates me with the profession of trust? And it is not by keeping my word and telling the truth and having a good intention. It's better done by avoiding being placed in that trust hole in the first place. So how do I, in a sense, separate myself from the bad reputation of salespeople that have come before me by demonstrating that I have an other focused um motive that why i do this is not to make money it's to serve that why i care is that you make progress with or without me not just using my product so i think those there are many examples and you know you asked me what makes someone the most trustworthy person in the room i mentioned two of them i'll add the last one which i think is the sort of platinum rule of trust and it's maybe the hardest one for most people to get their head around it is that Keeping your promise is different from meeting people's expectations. And for most of us, we expect that we will be judged based on whether or not we keep our promises. And in a fair world, that's true. But customers are people and they all have unexpressed expectations. Maybe ones they don't even articulate to themselves but they will judge us based on whether or not we meet those expectations. And so you can either be indignant about it and end up not being trusted, or you can walk through life asking everyone you know, after making a promise, what else do you trust me to do? Or what other expectations do you have that you haven't expressed? And maybe even making some offers. You know, do you have a, an expectation for how I should follow up? Do you have an expectation for how I should address you? There are many things you could seed into that. But if you don't constantly live as if my promise is your expectations, not just what I've said I will do, you'll end up being judged for the difference between people's expectations and your promise. Unfairly, yes. But if you want to be the most trusted person in the world, close the gap between others' expectations and your promise. So... There's a, a, a phrase I use quite often with salespeople, which is acknowledge the obvious. If you, if you know there's something that your prospect is thinking, you might as well bring it up. It's why, it's why I like to bring up any objections before I ask for somebody's business. Let, you know, there's an objection type I call uh, an every, type, every time objection, which is an objection that tends to come up for a salesperson in their particular uh, product or service almost every time. So 
why wait for the prospect to bring it up? Bring it up to them. So when it comes to acknowledging the obvious, are you suggesting we should actually say, hey, look, I know you probably don't trust salesperson people, and I am a salesperson, but I'm going to do everything I can to show you that, you know, I'm somebody who you can work with and uh, I'll, I'll work very hard to earn your trust. I mean, obviously smiling and all that other stuff you said before is crucial because that that instantaneous thing. But should we be that straightforward with people? Uh, I, I don't recommend that because I'm of the view that when you tell people that you're trustworthy, it seems suspiciously untrustworthy. <laughs> so I would recommend that you show rather than tell. And my preferred way of showing someone something or allowing them to see it for themselves is to share a story. And so I recommend that the very first story you share with someone is the story behind why you do what you do that allows them to see that you have passion, humility, that you can be trusted. And that's usually by revealing why you chose to do what you do today. And of course, if you said, you know, I do what I do today because I make a lot of money, well, then expect us not to be trusted. <laughs> but I know that most salespeople like to make money like every other human. But most salespeople are in sales because they love either the product they represent or the company or the opportunity to work with people. And if you tell a little story that allows people to see, oh, here you are, just a regular, awesome human who's trying to make a difference who happens to get paid for what they do, you've come so much further than how most people introduce themselves, which is saying, I'm a salesperson. Give me the reputation that everyone else in sales gets. Yeah, it's why when I'm talking to uh, salespeople about their LinkedIn profiles, please don't put the words account executive or salesperson or sales representative in there. I'm not ashamed at all. I'm very proud to be a salesperson, having done it for a long time with integrity. I, 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 I believe that we do we do great things, but why smack somebody in the face with it? Salesperson, come up with something a little bit better. And the other thing that um, I think is uh, the advice I often give is in any given situation, don't act like the typical salesperson. And uh, if you're a fan of the show Seinfeld, like I am, uh, I loved all four characters, but I have a particular soft spot in my heart for George, the perennial loser. <laughs> And if, if you know the show, in one episode, George figures out that if everything he does is wrong, all he has to do is the opposite of what he thinks he should do. And in that episode, he gets a beautiful new girlfriend. He gets a job with the Yankees and he moves out of his parents' house just by wow. doing the opposite. And that's often the, the advice I give salespeople. In any given situation, think about what would the typical salesperson do here and do the opposite because the typical salesperson is not well thought of. And, and that, uh, does the term transparency track you? There's a terrific book called The Transparency Sale written by Todd Capone. And his advice is just be transparent with your prospects, including in a negotiation, saying things like, hey, look, here's what I'm looking to get out of this. What are you looking to get out of this? And just being honest with each other, because quite often that can bring you together way more easily than fighting with each other, which is how many sales trainers talk about negotiations like it's war. Is transparency an important part of what we're talking about here? Absolutely. I love Todd and his book. I believe it to my core. And even being realistic about understanding that sometimes transparency may cost you something in a negotiation that you could have otherwise won with traditional negotiating tactics. But believing that, that win in the moment might cost you reputation in the future. And that has a price tag as well. And so it's, it's believing that doing the right thing, even though it may not maximize this deal with this customer today, is going to serve you in your career. And I often say to salespeople, you know, you're going to work for many companies in your time. And you'll be calling on this prospect three months from now from a new company selling maybe a very similar product and you'll expect them to believe you when you first said at the first company we're the best we're the fastest we're the cheapest there's no flaws but those other guys are not very good and then three months later you're those other guys and you're going to be expected to be believed like take a career view of your reputation and that's why i love todd's work i believe being transparent is taking a long-term view of what will serve us and our customers even in the face of it, maybe costing our current companies a little margin on this deal today. Yeah, uh, it's so funny. Uh, I, I, I go nuts when I hear salespeople make insane claims like we're the best, we're the number. Now, look, if you've got proof to back that up, 
make that claim 100%, but there's there's a commercial I hear over and over. Uh, I forgot the guy's exact name, but he's, I'm blah, 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 the world's number one sales trainer, blah, blah, blah. It's Jason somebody, I forgot his last name. And every time I hear it, I'm like, you're the world's number one sales trainer? Now look, I'm really good at what I do, but what do you base number am i the number one i don't think so there's got to be people better than me and who aren't as good as me but what's that claim based on if you can yeah. prove it to me then great you're number one but stop making stupid claims and it, it just doesn't make sense to me because yeah. my hackles are immediate i wouldn't buy anything this guy is selling just because he's calling himself the world's number one hundred <clears throat> percent in your camp in fact i would say even if you are number one it's probably not worth shouting from the hilltops about it because every company is claiming one or another version of faster, better, cheaper, different. And that's all wonderful. But if you're a prospect and you're hearing about that from all salespeople, how do you know who's lying and telling the truth? When in reality, you look at all their websites in most competitive industries, they're pretty similar. So it's really difficult to see who is really telling the truth. And therefore, I think what helps a salesperson win a deal is standing apart. You said it so eloquently. Maybe just do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. It's not about are you better than or cheaper than or faster than. I believe it is. Are you uniquely placed to help this customer from their perspective? And that is not a question you can answer universally. That's a question you can only ask prospect by prospect. So saying we're the best says we're the best for everyone. When really I think what's required is here is how I can help you today with your particular desired progress and what makes us unique in that way for good and for bad. Taking a leaf out of Todd's book, here's what we do really, really well. And here's what we do don't do so well. So if this matters to you, great. But if these other things matter to you, you're probably better off with my competitor. Yeah, I actually have fairly close relationships with several of my competitors here on Long Island where, uh, you know, I do a lot of work and I, we all call each other friendly competitors. I've referred them. They've referred me when 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 I'm not the right person, but I know one of them is I'd rather say, hey, you know what? I'd love to take your money. I'd love to work with you. But you know what? You're really better served by my competitor XYZ. Let me make an introduction for you. And look, if you find it's not a good match, you can always get back to me. You can't lose there. You just can't lose as far as I'm concerned. Uh, one of the acronyms I've taught my three kids is ADTRT, which stands for always do the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is saying, you know what? The competition's better at that than I am. I, I used to teach customer service as part of sales training when customers would ask for it. I met a world-class customer service trainer and immediately stopped offering it. Now, when customers ask me, my customers say, hey, can you do customer service training? I can, but I don't. I'm like, let me introduce you to my friend Randy Busty. She is world class. She, she blows me away. I'd rather, I'd rather you work with her because wow. it's just the right thing to do. And I say that always, always comes back to you every single time. Maybe not immediately. Maybe not from the person who you made that introduction to. But somehow the universe is going to pay you back for doing the right thing. Amen. Hundred percent agree. So, um, what what is promise selling? And what are the three pillars of promise selling? Yeah, well, you know, we've been looking at different sales systems over the last couple of years and came to the conclusion that they are built mostly, although many are described as customer centric, with the idea that you move a customer through a set of steps that gets them from prospect to closed one. And it's very much about the company and their needs. And since our belief is that the fundamental thing that matters in sales is being the most trustworthy person in the room, we sought to build a sales methodology, but really it is a set of characteristics, traits, habits, and approaches that starts with the assumption, job number one is to make yourself appear and to actually be trustworthy. And how do you do that? by making a series of small and big promises, small to start with, bigger over time. And the pillars of it are noticing that who I am and my character, whether it's credible or not, is itself a promise. Like, are you carrying yourself through life as a promise? Like you so eloquently said, I promise, and you didn't before your 30s, and then you decided to do exactly this. I promise to be someone who will 
tell the truth, do the right thing, have good intentions and keep my word. That's having a credible character. But I think beyond that, promise selling is a set of core habits that I've practiced generate trust over time. And they're the kind of habits you would expect in a sales skills program, but they're built from the foundation of trust up. So asking questions isn't about getting the answers. It's about demonstrating that you're interested, you're curious, you're wanting to understand people before you dare to make an offer. Listening is more than waiting for a gap to speak. And it's building trust by empathizing, by demonstrating that you will put your assumptions aside and listen with an open heart and mind first. So core habits are the second pillar. And the last one, again, like you said it more eloquent, eloquently, it's the ability to have conversations that aren't just about something, but that literally create something. And in this case, conversations that create a future in which this prospect's problem or progress is solved or made. So credible character, core habits, and creative conversations. We keep all the C's so it's easy for me to remember. <laughs> I love that last thing you said about the future. One of my favorite questions to ask is, and I, I, I assume that you, we sell to similar people. You know, I, I deal with VPs of sales and presidents and CEOs. And one of my favorite questions to ask is, hey, Andrew, let's say you and I agree that we're going to work together. And six months from now, we're having a conversation just like this. What would have to have happened in the last six months for you to say to me, Jeff, I am so glad I decided to work with you. I, I mean, it, it, it seems so obvious to me, but when you ask that question, if you listen to the answer, your prospect is telling you exactly what you need to know in order to help them choose to become your customer. They're telling you, here's what I want. Can you deliver that? Exactly. It, 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 it makes perfect sense. I'm always about, Andrew, making my job in sales as easy as I possibly can because sales is not an easy gig. I know it seems that way to most people. Oh, salespeople, they just go out and talk. Well, not the smart ones. The smart ones ask questions and listen, but but it's not an easy gig and there's a lot of pressure. So I'm all about making it as easy as possible. So I, I wanna let the prospect do the selling. Let them sell themselves. All I, My job is to just help to lead us through a conversation that eventually, hopefully ends more often than not, or as often as possible with them saying, sounds good, sign me up. Are, are there some larger promises in, in promise selling? And um, what's yes. the trust trajectory? I, I, I was interested in that. Well, let, let's start with the, the bigger promises because promise selling, as the name implies, is a series of small and big promises that you make. And I think it begins with the biggest one, which is, I promise you that I will act as a partner in helping you make progress towards your goals. Not my goals, your goals. And the magnetic part that we talk about is the promise that I'll help you get your other stakeholders on board because I know that's always a problem in B2B sales. There's a promise in there about who I am. I make a promise that I will be a human being worthy of your trust. There's a promise that I will absolutely seek to deeply understand your problems, your needs, and your progress, the way you'll measure it before I dare to pitch you on anything. And finally, there's a promise that I won't offer you a solution or sell you a solution or give you one, but I will co-create one with you. So you're co-responsible for how it's designed and how it's implemented. So those for me are the really essential promises that we make. And there's, of course, a lot of little promises that you make, things as small as how I'm going to run today's meeting, the promise that I'll end on time, the promise I'll send you follow-up notes. All of those little ones are the drops that Kevin Plank speaks about in his beautiful quote, trust is built in drops and lost in buckets. So I, I want to make it clear for myself and, and everybody who's listening, we're not actually saying those promises to people. We're being those promises, right? I mean, you don't come out and say, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a co-creator with you. Am I, I correct? I, I think some of them you demonstrate and many of them you do actually say. So I, I say to prospects all the time that rather than give you the three options and letting you choose one, I'm going to show you some alternatives. And I'll, I would like to lead a conversation in which you tell me what you like and what you don't like. 
And my promise is we'll create something together rather than I'll go into my back room and, you know, concoct the best thing for you, show up with my arrogant demeanor and tell you what you should do. So, yes, I, I think many of them are actually stated. And maybe they don't use the language of a promise. For example, when we begin a meeting, we start every meeting by declaring the purpose and the benefit of the meeting. That's a promise. If I have an agenda for what I'll cover and in what time frame, that's a promise. If I ask you to give me a little bit of feedback on how I ran today's meeting at the beginning of the meeting, that's a promise that I can deliver on at the end of the meeting. So I think many of them are stated. Not all of them use the language of promise. It's fascinating. I, just yesterday, I had a conversation with a Vistage chair who started out the conversation with, what's your purpose of this meeting today? Awesome. Uh, I, I was actually blown away. I'm like, wow, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. And I just answered honestly. I, you know, I, was, I was actually interviewing him for two reasons. One is, could he be a guest on this show? And two is, how do I get to give a speech for his group? Because are you familiar with Vistage? Yes, I am. I used to be a Vistage speaker and a Vistage member, so I know it very well. For those who are, who are listening, Vistage is a CEO peer group. Uh, CEOs of companies join Vistage, at its, uh, and they meet once a month. Uh, the meeting is led by a professional facilitator called a chair. And for people like Andrew and myself, uh, well, I'll just speak for me, Andrew. There's no group I'd rather speak to than a Vistage group. I love a big audience, but you put 10 or 12 Vistage members in a room, I'm happy because you're sitting with a room full of decision makers. It's just, it's the best thing you can possibly do if you're in sales uh, to become a Vistage approved speaker. Um, so what, what are responsible promises? That's what I mentioned earlier. You know, we, we talk about promises as what I say I will do. And I think that I would define that as a stated promise. And frankly, most people make fairly vague stated promises. So there's already a lot of work that we can do to go from vague, like I'll get you the report on Thursday, to something that has power. Here's what I will do, by when, and how. And importantly, with two things added, here are the conditions that I think, if I satisfy them, I will expect you to say you've met the, the, your promise, Andrew. And the other thing I like to include in a stated promise is when I'll give you an update. Because people are so used to having promises broken that unless you give people an update on your progress, what you're really doing is putting them into a state of anxiety, worried that you too won't deliver your promise. So I like to include in my promise what I'll do, when I'll do it, how I'll do it, the conditions of satisfaction, and when you'll get an update along the way. However, that doesn't make it a responsible promise. A responsible promise adds one thing. It's responding to that unfair world that people will judge you based on your, their expectations, maybe over and above or certainly different from what you stated. So a stated promise becomes a responsible promise when you say, what else do you trust me to do? Or what else do you expect me to do? And you get those answers, maybe negotiate about some, I can agree to that. I can't agree to that. I'll meet you halfway on this. And then your new promise includes everyone's stated expectations. And it's a living promise because what you expect from me today will change tomorrow. So if I really care about always meeting your expectations, then I'm signing up for being in perpetual communication with you. What's changed? What's new? Do you have any new expectations? since three weeks ago when we last met. And the reality is business and life changes so quickly that it's just natural that people's expectations change. In fact, maybe the person who they met with after you, the next salesperson, created a new expectation in their world because of a feature that they demonstrated. And now they expect you'll do that. And if you don't care to ask that question, how can you respond to those expectations? You can't. Hence, a responsible promise is a stated promise plus an inquiry into people's unstated expectations. I love that. And um, I, I, you said something a moment ago that, that brought me back to Todd's book again, which I really do think is brilliant. Uh, and it changed something for me. I used to teach salespeople that you always have to under promise and over deliver. 
And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that we've all been taught for years and years. And it sounds good. It sounds, oh, yeah, I'm going to promise you less, but I'm going to give you more and you're going to be thrilled. And when I read Todd's book, I was like, oh, my God, we're actually reducing trust when we do that. What we need to do is say, here's what I'm going to do and then do that. I'm 100 percent in that camp. And like you, I spent many years. In fact, one of my favorite stories I tell about my early career is getting just that advice, believing it to be true acting on it and finding out the hard way that under promising and over delivering is not that trustworthy in fact it just demonstrates that you're trying to game the system it earns the reputation a manipulative yeah what we really need to do is make promises and keep our word period it, 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 it's funny you, you, you just said something uh, you know uh I have two examples. One is when I bought, I don't have a Peloton bike, I have a competitor bike. And when I ordered it uh, during the height of the pandemic, it said it was going to take four weeks to arrive. And I was like, yeah, of course it will, because, you know, everything's screwed up right now. It actually came in two weeks. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited. And I said, wait a minute, they must have known they could deliver it in two weeks. Why did they tell me four? You know what? They probably did. It's just so I would have this feeling. And now I feel manipulated. <laughs> and I don't want to feel manipulated. It, it, it's awesome. crazy. And then on the flip side, uh, I just had to order a new computer. Uh, 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 it's a whole long story. I don't want to get into it. It, it made me crazy for two weeks now. But um, I, I'm not even going to say the company. No, I'm not going to say the company name. But I ordered. And they said, oh, your, 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 your current computer is failing. I'm going to get it to you by tomorrow. I'm like, wow, you can do that? She goes, yes, I can. And I'm not going to charge extra. And I'm like, wow, that's fantastic. Except it showed up three days later. Now. Yeah. I have a feeling she had the best of intentions, uh, you know, when she was talking to me uh, uh, on the phone. But now I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm pissed off and they've lost trust. And then they did a bunch of other stuff to lose my trust. But it's yeah. just tell the truth. Here's what I can do for you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it happen in this amount of time in this way. And when people get what you've told them they're going to get, I, I think that's all you need to do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that those two examples you shared are exactly why people have come to the conclusion under promise and over deliver because I think your disappointment in the computer was probably greater than your joy with the exercise bike. Oh, by, uh, by orders of magnitude. Yeah. So if you're going to err, err on the side of over-delivering what you said you're going to do. But I still believe in what Todd says and what we both believe, which is maybe there's a middle ground to say, I believe we can get it there in one day. Our track record says we get it there in one day. The worst case scenario is it's going to be three days and that may happen, but I'm committing to doing everything in my power to get it to you tomorrow. And if it does arrive late, here's what I may do in addition to solve that annoyance. That would have changed my entire experience. Well, they did a lot of other stuff after that that really lost my trust too. But, but it, <laughs> that one thing initially would have made the whole experience much better. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, uh, the Kellogg Sales Institute. I've never heard of that before until I started researching it today. What is the Kellogg Sales Institute? Yeah, well, it's, it's an extraordinary institute in the sense that it's one of the very few business school-based research foundation institutes. And we exist to help MBA, executive MBA, and executive education students come to sales and appreciate it as a discipline, a science backed by research, not a trade that people take on when they fail at everything else. So we're trying to establish it on the same footing with the same disciplines, the same credibility, a curricula, a code of ethics like any other respected profession would have. And we're very blessed that Kellogg has a view on this you know, marketing is a science, economics is a science, and sales is indeed a science as well. Wow. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much I love hearing that. Uh, I believe that sales should be taught in high school and it should be taught in college courses. Uh, it, it, it is a profession and an honorable one. You know, nothing moves until somebody sells something. And we can do it with 100% integrity and we can actually change over time the way the public views us which is what you're committed to doing in the first place yes yeah and you know more than that my own view is that to lead is to sell and so learning to sell in high school or beyond doesn't just set you up to be a salesperson although i hope that many people in future and one of our metrics of success is you know in future will parents say i hope my kid becomes a salesperson one day 
then we'll know we've finally solved our mission. Uh, but I think at the heart of that is really getting to this question of what are selling skills good for? And if you look at them, sales skills and leadership skills are identical in almost every respect. The difference is salespeople do it for customers, leaders do it for employees and other stakeholders as well. But it's a very similar set of skills. So I encourage everyone, if you care to lead a company one day, spend some time in sales. Well, so many CEOs came from the sales department. No accident, that's for sure. We're, we're getting short on time here. And I, there was something else I wanted to talk with you about. Uh, one of my favorite topics, which is storytelling. You brought this up a little bit before. You have an entire program dedicated just to storytelling. So could you share with everybody, why is it so important in sales? Why is storytelling so important? And most importantly, how do we become better storytellers? Yes. Well, the, the first reason is that we spoke about this under the topic of influence earlier. I do believe that selling requires that a prospect changes their mind from, I don't want to work with you to I do, or I don't know which product to buy to I now am clear to I'm not sure on the solution. And now I'm very clear on it and ready to act. So there is a mind changing process. And all the research we've done into how humans change their minds is we need facts and figures and evidence. The problem is, that on their own facts and figures and evidence cause resistance, analysis, and stall progress because they threaten our ego. So stories are a way of allowing someone to see for themselves by telling a story that embeds facts and figures rather than telling people what to do. And no one likes being told what to do. It's one of the reasons salespeople have a bad reputation. So phenomenal salespeople are humble enough to share a story and trust that their prospects will see what they need to see in that story. And yeah, what makes uh, a good storyteller, many things, one of which is I think telling stories that are true. That means though deciding what to tell and what not to tell, not lying or making things up. But also there is a, it's a craft and there is a way of structuring a story that creates freedom and expression. There are storytelling techniques for sure. But I think the most important skill is recognizing that great storytellers don't make them up in the moment. They've done the work to find them, to document them, to practice them, to choose the right one for the right reason at the right time. Like any great skill that looks natural and easy, it hides hundreds of hours of preparation behind the skill. Yeah, I could. Once again, I could not agree more. Uh, before I uh, opened up my own sales training company 18 years ago, I worked for a large, well-known sales training company. And we actually had an intranet where we had stories for every industry, success stories for every single industry we had ever worked on. So if I was going to talk to a bank about doing some sales training. I could go into there and there's 15 stories about banks we work with and how we help them. And you know, I, I think what so many salespeople don't realize is we're fighting against brain science because the brain when, when we're making a buying decision the brain automatically tries to protect itself from making a bad decision and think start thinking about if i hand hired jeff or andrew what if it doesn't work out what if i give them all this money and sales don't increase what if they uh, what if there's a sexual what what if what if what if a sexual harassment suit or something like that and, and it's natural because the brain's trying to protect itself from making a bad decision and when we start realizing that that's just human nature now we realize that the, we can't change their minds for them. It, it's not really sales's job to help to change their mind. The only person who can change their mind is themselves. So my belief is stories are what helps them do that. I, I call it a verbal truth story, a story about somebody else like you, Mr. or Ms. Prospect, who by doing business with me lived happily ever after, which helps people switch from, oh, what if I make a mistake here to, oh, this worked out for somebody else, so maybe it'll work out for me too. It's not us manipulating them. It's not us trying to talk them into something, but it is us sharing information with them that they can then use to say, maybe this is safe. Am I on the right, uh, right track here? Yeah, well said. I, I wish I had said it as succinctly as that. <laughs> I've said that more than once. You also talk about the difference, uh, and, and I do too, between the sales process and the buying process. I used to, up until 
probably six or seven years ago, teach salespeople, you've got to control everything from start to finish. If you don't, you're going to be screwed. You're not going to close enough business. You're going to close way more if you control. It's all about your sales process. And I came to realize that sales process is nowhere near as important. In fact, it's unimportant compared to the buying process of your prospect. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Well, if you'll notice, companies have a sales process that appears to be the same for every one of their customers. Yet every customer is a unique human being who comes to the problem having done no research or a lot of research, having bought this product or a similar before, or this is a first time purchase. They're either making the decision on their own or there's 17 people whispering in their ears and giving them budget or not. So I think every single customer has a unique process for getting to an answer. And job number one beyond, well, let's call it job number two. Job number one is earning the trust to ask this question. Jeff, what is your process for making the decision here? And how are you going to go about evaluating alternatives, including ours, getting your stakeholders on board, deciding what will work, minimizing your risk, maximizing your upside? And I think great salespeople ask about that, listen for it, document it, and then that becomes my sales process. Now, I may still have to go back to my CRM and sort of force it into the different stages my company wants to see. But my mindset is, how can I help you solve your problem in the way you want to solve it? Yeah, yeah. If we're just going with, here's how I sell, step one, step two, step three, and I'm going to do that no matter what. And to everybody the same, we, we could be missing out on a lot of business that we could otherwise get. And, uh, you know, it, 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 the question I always ask is, you know, the last time your company made a decision like this, in my case, in your case, sales training or sales coaching, the last time your company made a decision like this, how'd you go about it and who was involved? Because again, it, it comes down to asking the right questions. If you just ask the right questions and shut up and listen, your prospect will tell you everything you need to know in order to help them choose to become your customer. But so many of us, and I hate this word desperately, are intent on pitching. I, I, I despise that word just because of everything it brings up. It, it implies the, you know, the, a, a con artist. My job's not to pitch. My job's to have a conversation with you. And at the end, you go, think I want some or think I don't want some. Yeah. And, and I don't know about you. For you. <laughs> I, I like to remember that pitching reminds me of a pitchfork and no one likes being stuck with a pitchfork. It hurts to be pitched versus creating a solution with you. I love that. Hey, Andrew, before we go, I have to ask because I grew up there. What do you like about living in Chicago? The summers are magnificent. The city just comes alive. I think it's the best kept secret in America. I mean, I know it's well kept because the winters are brutal, but there's nothing better than the architectural uh, riverboat cruise on a summer evening looking at the beautiful architecture in Chicago, it's magnificent. Yeah, I, I think I might have told you this when, when we first met, uh, that I, I grew up there, I, I moved to New York when I was 17, and the things I miss desperately about Chicago are food. The hot dogs in Chicago are unlike anywhere else in the world. They are, at, well, actually, you can get the, a Chicago dog in Las Vegas, but but uh, phenomenal, and deep dish pizza from Lou Malnati's or Pizzeria Uno or Douay. Uh, I, I salivate when a prospect says, hey, we're in Chicago, would you like to come do some? Yes, I'd like to come do some training. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, often, a, you know, after you do some work for them, they'll, you know, can we take you out to dinner? And uh, what would you like to eat, Jeff? I know this is going to sound weird, but can we go get a hot dog? Uh, I, I just love them. That's awesome. And, well, I look forward uh, to uh, having you in Chicago and taking you for a hot dog. Uh, Portillo's is on me, my friend, anytime. Uh, I, I also miss Carson's ribs. I, we have good ribs here too, but Carson's ribs are great. I'm going to share my screen. Uh, would you please tell people how they can reach you if they're interested in uh, any of your programs, anything that you do? Of course, like any good salespeople, I'm very happy for people to contact me directly. My email address is andrew at habitsatwork.com, all spelled out that second habits, A-T-W-O-R-K. I'm a professional speaker, so lots of information at my personal speaking site, andrewsykes.com. Our company website, habitsatwork.com, has a lot of info. And one of the businesses I'm involved in, Serene or Serene.life, is a business that helps people, including salespeople, to become unrecognizable to themselves in all the best ways. 
So contact me or find out more on any of those websites or email addresses. And thank you for sharing that. We also have a trust user. That. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, you've got a QR code on the screen for those. This is going to get converted to a podcast, so some people will just be listening. But for those who are watching, what's the QR code for? It's for our trust newsletter. We do research in trust and we share that. Or when we're on amazing podcasts like this, we take excerpts from it and put it onto that newsletter. So we like to say, trust us. We won't sell you anything on the newsletter. It's just information. Fantastic. Well, Andrew, this has been a wonderful conversation. And uh, thank you so much for sharing your brilliance with us generously. And uh, I, I truly appreciate it. And I'll end as I always do. Gang, please remember, sales is a game of making things happen. So get out there and make sales happen. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, everybody. Have a great weekend. See you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.